U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined, as always, by the one, the only, the sugar bear to your whatever it is, Kristoff. Well, uh, I've, yes, hello. I, I've been called worse, certainly, sugar bear. I accept. Okay. So... We are actually going back to the Civil War, believe it or not. We've taken a little bit of a hiatus on that. Talked about a bunch of other things. But uh, we're, we're back today. <laughs> we're going to be, uh, if you remember, we're on the lower seaboard area of operations. We had just finished talking about the South Carolina area. And we're going to just touch briefly on Georgia, then Florida. And then we're going to get into Louisiana. So are you ready to get underway? Yes, sir. All righty. So Georgia, that's a state in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Just so, just so you know. So there was a fort there called Fort Pulaski on the Georgia coast. And this was actually an early target for the Union Navy. So after the they captured Port Royal... A expedition was organized with engineer troops under a guy named Captain Quincy A. Gilmore. And they took a month to position 36 mortars and rifled cannons nearby that fort on Tybee Island, at which he opened a bombardment on the fort on April 10th. And the Confederates surrendered the next afternoon because, you know, their magazine was being threatened by the Union shells. You know what happens when a shell hits a magazine? Not personally, like I can imagine. Big bada boom. As I imagine. Massive, yeah, massive destruction. So, after they surrender, the Union Army occupies the fort for the rest of the war, after making repairs. One undone. So, that brings us to Florida. So Florida succeeds in January of 1861, and their troops seize most of the federal property in the state, with the exception of Fort Zachary Tyler in Key West and Fort Pickens in Pensacola. The Union Navy establishes a blockade on the coast pretty darn early in the war. And with the state's Atlantic coast covered by the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron and the Gulf Coast by the East Gulf Blockading Squadron. So there were a couple of small skirmishes fought in the state, but really no major battles. There was an attempt in 64 to organize a pro-union government, a union force under General Truman Seymour moved inland from Jacksonville, but was defeated at the Battle of Ulsti on February 20th, and this was the largest Civil War battle in Florida. And, I mean, they only had 10,500 troops in total, both sides. Oh, wow. So, pretty, pretty moderate by Civil War standards. So, the Union Army attempted to capture the state capital of Tallahassee, but were defeated at the Battle of Natural Bridge on March 8th of 65. So Florida, fun fact, was the only uh, one of two Confederate states not to have its capital captured during the war. Huh. I did not know that. What uh, would the other one be? Austin in Texas, Hmm. which I believe you know pretty well. Yeah, I've been there several times. Yeah, it's uh, surrounded by that... One loop with one road go, one major highway going through it. It's a pain in the butt. Ah, uh, yes. It's not even a loop. That it's called a loop, but it's not a loop. It's. I cannot tell you how aggravating that is, but anyway. Yeah, it's, it's like a crescent. Yes. Anyway, all of our Austin friends, you know, if if you want better road systems, especially for a state capital, uh, go talk to the governor. Make him. Yeah, he's right there. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, that's going to bring us to Louisiana. Now, Louisiana had a lot of things happen because, you know, right there is the Mississippi River. Right. 
So that was why during the beginning of the war, the Union had that uh, as their early objective. They wanted the Mississippi River because they wanted to cut the Confederacy in half. So the key to the river was New Orleans uh, because they had the South's largest port and greatest industrial center. So in April of 1862, a Union Naval Task Force commanded by a guy named Commander David D. Porter attacks Fort Jackson and St. Philip, which guarded the river approach to the city from the south. So while part of the fleet bombarded the forts, other vessels forced to break through the obstructions that were placed in the river to enable the rest of the fleet to steam upriver to the city. A Union Army force commanded by a guy named Major General Benjamin Butler landed near the forts and forced their surrender. The next year, the Ar Union Army of the Gulf commanded by a guy named Major General Nathan P. Banks, well, he was like, let's, let's siege this place up. And he sieged Port Hudson for eight weeks. Yikes. And yeah, this is the longest siege in U.S. military history. And they w wanted to cut Port Hudson's supply lines through the Red River. So Banks advances up the Bayou Tichy, capturing the Atchafalaya and the Red River up to Alexandra. The Confederacy during this time surrendered the city on July 9th after hearing that Vicksburg also surrendered. So after both of these places surrendered, this gave the Union control over the entire Mississippi River, mm. and they succeeded in splitting the Confederacy in half. So for the rest of the war, the Confederates concentrated on trying to recapture these areas that they lost. So from June to September of 1863, Major General Richard Tyler, who was the commander of the District of West Louisiana, attempted to recapture these areas. They tried to cut Banks's communications with New Orleans and wanted the city itself. While they were successful in, you know, a battle here and there, the Confederacy ultimately lost. Spoilers, but yeah, they lost. What? What? We're not at the end. Don't tell. Don't tell everybody. Well, we're at the end of Louisiana. Well, that's true. Eight week siege. That's substantial. I just keep thinking about that. And how uh, in Georgia, at the top of the episode, you were talking about like less than a day, like attack, next day, fort defeated and occupied. It's quite a contrast. Yeah, it, uh, that, it's, that's two months of not getting fresh supplies, of being surrounded by armed men wanting to kill you. And if that's in the summertime, I mean, that humidity is killer. I don't know if you've been to New Orleans in August, but it's like, it's like a warm coat hugging you all the time. Plus, you know, mosquitoes mm. and all that stuff. It's, it's bless them for, for doing that, for living there. Indeed. All right. So we're going to go over some of the battles that the Navy participated in. Uh, so the first one we're going to look at is the Battle of Fort Jackson and St. Philip. So, uh, you know, just a refresher. Be Fort Jackson and Fort St. Philip were a pair of uh, forts on the Mississippi River. They were sighted about 25 miles above the head of the passes where the river divides before it enters the Gulf of Mexico. So about 75 miles downstream from New Orleans, or Nolens, however you want to say it. I've heard it both ways. Fort Jackson was on the right bank, so the southwest bank, while Fort St. Philip was on the left, or the north bank of the river. And because of the path of the river, Fort Jackson was, was actually about a little east of Fort St. Philip. And these... Forts were designed for the defense against evasion in the early days of sail. But now we're getting to the days of steam. Right. 
the forts were situated near a bend in the river that would force ships to slow down when passing. So they would be, you know, close to stationary targets. And between the forts, they had 177 guns. So the Union, the, uh, up until this time, you know, land-based guns are, had long been considered invulnerable to attack by naval gunfire. But there was a weakness discovered in the Battle of Port Royal when it happened in South Carolina. And after that battle, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, a guy named Gustavus V. Fox, began to ask for expanded use of the United States Navy in attacking coastal Confederate positions. And he emphasized particularly wanting to go after New Orleans, which was, you know, the largest city in the Confederacy near the Gulf. He proposed that the two forts could be weakened, if not just completely destroyed, by mortar barrage. And then a relatively small army force could then, you know, assault the forts and take them. And then once the forts are reduced, or even, you know, during the uh, army attack, the fleet could just steam past them, waving, hi guys, <laughs> bye guys, and, you know, attack New Orleans directly. Now, the army, on the other hand, there was a guy named uh, General-in-Chief George B. McLennan. He was like, I don't like this plan. I'm, I don't want to do it. Because he was like, I would need at least thirty to 50,000 troops, minimum, to be able to do this. And that was just going to take men from other of army operations that we're already doing, particularly in the peninsula against, you know, Richmond, Virginia. I'm glad you clarified because I'm like, which peninsula? So thank you. Oh, you mean there's more than one? Well, Florida is right there, and there's even one hanging in uh, Louisiana. So they're, they're scattered around. Okay, fair, fair. You're not a mind reader. Gotcha. So the uh, Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, he negated all of their objections. He uh, got the political umfa umfa that he needed by a guy named General uh, Benjamin F. Butler, who allowed the expedition to proceed under Butler's name. So with Butler's support, Wells is able to persuade Abraham Lincoln, you know, the president, and the campaign was ordered forward. See, lots of politics playing. Oh, yes. I'm sure that would be an entire other series of podcasts that we could do on just the politics of this whole thing. Not me. (laughs) Well, the, the royal we. So on February 23rd of 1862, Butler is told that he was now in charge of the land forces and he was to cooperate with the Navy in the tech on New Orleans and that the number of troops that he had was 18,000. Much less than the 50,000 that they imagined that they would need. Well, McLennan thought he would need, right. but he's... McLennan. Listen to earlier episodes to know about him. Oh, yeah. So there was going to have to be an organizational change in the Navy before planning the campaign could proceed. On December 23rd of 1861, the Gulf Blockading Squadron was divided into the East Coast and West, or East Gulf and West Gulf Squadrons and uh, placed the command of the West Gulf Blockading Squadron was Captain David Glasgow Farragut. I'm sure that's a name you recognize. I do. Many uh, streets in Texas named Farragut. Yeah. And he gets to Ship Island, which is in the Gulf of Mexico, on February 20th, 1862. And so once, you know, the commander's in place, they're like, well, this is when the official start date of the campaign is. So when Farragut gets there, he identifies two problems. You know, in addition to any resistance by the confederates the first problem was dealing with butler and his army and he handled this by just simply ignoring them 
Oh, okay. Yeah, the army took no further part. He's like, ah, we don't need the army. You could be here, you cannot be here, eh, I'm still going to do my thing. Yeah. Uh, the second problem was that part of Farragut's fleet was a semi-autonomous group of mortar schooners, headed by his foster brother, in fact, David D. Porter. And Porter was a, well, he was considered a master of intrigue. And he had the ear of Assistant Secretary Fox. And so Farragut had to let the mortars be tried. He thought that they were going to be proven useless. And this is why he wanted to get rid of them in the first place. But, you know, when you have the uh, ear of a uh, high-up politician... You tend to get your way. Yeah. Yeah. It's much easier to dismiss the army than it is to dismiss <laughs> the assistant secretary. So, about the middle of March, Farragut begins moving his ships across the bar at the mouth of the river. When you say bar, it's clearly not a place to have drinks and friends and stories, but rather some physical characteristic of the geography that impedes ships or something. Yeah, it's a sandbar. S sandbar, but not the kind that you get drinks with fancy umbrellas no okay this is a natural high point so if you're not careful if your your draft is too deep you will run aground on it i see thank you for uh illuminating uh my darkened mind continue your darkened mind has been brightened <laughs> but uh this you know caused some problems the they found out that the depth of the water was 15 feet instead of 18 feet that they were expecting. So the USS Colorado, as uh, I was just telling you, they drew their they had too much of uh, they they sat too low in the water and were not able to get across. So, but to Farragut, the most serious problem presented by the uh, failed effort to bring the Colorado into the river was not the reduction of force that he had, but just how much time he lost trying to finagle it into the river. But now that the Colorado was out, the fleet inside of the bar had six ships and 12 gunboats. So once they get into the river... Porter brought his 26 mortar schooners and, you know, his associated other vessels in, and they didn't have a problem. So in the next month, Farragut starts engaging the strength of the forts and trying to range their guns. So he was also looking at all the, uh, trying to figure out all the obstructions in the channel, you know, and then figure out exactly the best places to put the mortar boats to make them the most effective that they could be, even though he did not have any faith in them whatsoever. And, you know, also putting his, his ships into battle-ready condition. So working under the intermediate fire, uh, or intermittent fire of the uh, forts, because, you know, the, they're looking right at them. They're going to fire every once in a while to see if they can hit you. And also, they, you know, the gunboats, Confederate gunboats, the, they sent some guys ashore to survey the coast and to survey the forts. They placed buoys in the river channel to mark where the gunboats should be anchored. And uh, everything was, was pretty much done by April 18th. So the way the Confederates decided to prepare, they thought at the very beginning that the defense of New Orleans was to be primarily threatened from the North. So because they thought this, much of the material that they intended to use to protect the city was sent to strong points on the Mississippi, such as Island Number 10 in Fort Pillow and Memphis. We talked, we've talked about all of yeah. those guys. The immediate vicinity of the city was actually weakened 
because the guns were withdrawn for use in other campaigns further away. Like, you know, the Battle of Sheola or Shilo. So also because of this, the man that the, the region was pretty much stripped bare of military aged males. So there was a guy named Confederate Major General Mansfield Lovell, who was the commander of department number one. And he put much more credence in the buildup in the Gulf, you know, everybody else. He he was actually like, uh, guys, that's a huge open spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm guessing he wasn't listened to very much or just... Well, th th there was a guy named Flag Officer George A or George N. Hollins, he was in charge of the Confederate Naval Forces on the Mississippi, and he agreed with them. But unfortunately, the orders that he had were not uh, allowing him to act on these beliefs. I see. So he did have support, but not from anybody who mattered. Got it. Uh, the two forces were under the command of Brigadier General Johnson K. Duncan, and the average quality of the soldiers that were in the garrison were, you know, not as high as they would have liked. Most of the better guys had been drawn off, drawn off to other area of operations, leaving pretty much the guys who didn't want to be there and those not fit to serve in the first place. And because uh, New Orleans was something of an international city, they had a larger percentage of foreign-born soldiers than most units of the Confederate Army. But, you know, they were... They, yeah, they could be expected to do their duty, even though they would not, you know, go above and beyond. Right. I don't think their loyalty was to the Confederacy, but to the city, I'm sure. That's still their home. So they would do whatever they could right. to defend it. Yeah. So the defenses around the forts and, you know, the city, they were, it was supplemented by two defensive chains, which were stretched across the river to prevent, you know, boats from getting in. Oh. One chain was placed above the city and, you know, had no bearing on this battle whatsoever. And the other one was placed just below the forts, where, you know, if, Enemy vessels came in to try to break it. They would be able to fire on them. Now, as you can imagine, this barrier was much more important than the other oh, one. Oh, yes. Now, unfortunately, um, the, the original one that was put in was broken because there was some debris that came down river because of the spring floods. Oh. Now, they did repair it. But Lovell himself was like, um, this replacement's not as good as the original. It, it, it's, it's not going to be good. But say la vie, it is what it is. Uh, they also had a number of ships and boats at their disposal for the defense, and they were grouped into three organizations. The largest of these, by firepower, was a contingent of Confederate ironclads, the CSS Manassas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. They also had two traditional warships converted from merchantmen, the CSS McRae and Jackson, and a number of unarmed support craft. The state of Louisiana also furnished two ships, to the up uh, from the uh, provisional Louisiana Navy, which was the General Quitman and the General Moore. Lastly, they had six cotton clad rams from the River Defense Fleet. Did you say cotton clad? Yes. What does that mean? That is a type of armor. Were you not here when we went through the armor? I don't think so. It is pretty much two pieces of iron armor and in between them cotton huh i guess is a shock absorber or shock absorber splinter absorber you know insulation you know when it gets cold eh. uh you don't gotta worry about it getting cold that far that's south. true 
<laughs> uh, let's see. Now, these cotton-clads were usually a part of the Confederate Army, but they were commanded by civilian captains and pretty much crewed by civilians. They were the warrior, the Stonewall Jackson, the Defiance, the Resolute, and the General Lovell. Look at that. He had his, a boat named after nice. him. Nice. And then uh, to round that out, there was the General Breckenridge. There were also a number of tugs and un unarmored harbor craft, and we we're only mentioning them because two of them, the Bell Aldrine and the Mosher, did play a part in the battle. So that brings us to the battle. So the first phase was the bombardment. You got to try to soften up the defender. And this was through April 18th to the 23rd. So they, uh, mortar schooners, 21 of them, are placed close to the riverbanks downstream from the barrier chain, which at this time is in place. Their tops are covered with bushes for camouflage, and it also, you know, bushes are easy to replace as soon as it's stripped away by the shock wave from when they fire their weapons. So they start early in the morning, and they keep up a steady fire all day. Just lobbing mortars. Oh. He wanted a rate of a shot every 10 minutes from each mortar. And this would have kept a shot in the air throughout the bombardment. Stagger fire. That, yeah, that's crazy. Just the amount of material. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, you know, uh, uh, best laid plans, they, of course, were not able to maintain that rate. But... They did shoot more than 1,400 rounds on that first day. Whoa. I mean, the fact that they were carrying that many rounds in the first place is pretty significant, but that's a lot of mortar rounds. That's what support craft are for. Oh, for sure. They're the ones that carry the extra rounds. Now, they continued the bombardment throughout the next days, but, you know, the rate of fire got, you know, less and less and less. Uh, the fuses that were in the shells were not very reliable. A number of them exploded prematurely so to try to eliminate this problem on the rest of the days of the bombardment porter ordered that the fuses should be cut to full length because you know they were prematurely exploding so this had the unfortunate effect that they would hit the ground before exploding makes sense. which means that they sank into the soft wet earth of louisiana because everybody knows how wet louisiana is and so this had the unfortunate effect of muffling the effects of the blast. I guess natural defenses for uh, the native Louisianans, that's at, at their advantage, but certainly not the Union's. Yeah. So Fort Jackson suffered more heavily than Fort St. Philip, more than likely because it was closer to the mortars. But, you know, it, it was only minimally uh, less damage. Now, thankfully for the Confederacy, only seven pieces of artillery were disabled, and only two men were lost during the bombardment. They did, you know, uh, attempt to return fire on the uh, mortar boats, and of course, they were just as effective as the mortars. Wow. Which means they were ineffective. Oh, yes. That was a wow of, <laughs> yeah, this isn't going well for anybody. Yeah. Uh, only one schooner was sunk, and only one man was lost from, you know, enemy fire. They did lose one other man when he fell from the rigging. Ooh. So he died to via accident. Porter, he had promised Wells and Fox that his fleet would reduce both forts to rubble in 48 hours. That's a bold claim. Yeah, this didn't happen. And uh the immediate fighting effects uh the immediate fighting capacity of the forts, you know, were only affected by just a itty bitty bit. Right. They did do a survey of Fort Jackson after the battle and they noted did notice note some damage. I have a quote here. Quote All the scows and boats near the fort, except three small ones, were sunk. The drawbridge 
hot shot furnaces and water and fresh water cisterns were destroyed. The floors of the casements were flooded, the levee having been broken. All the platforms for pitching tents on were destroyed by fire or shells. All the casements were cracked, the roof in some places were entirely broken through, and masses of brick dislodged in numerous instances. The outer walls of the fort were cracked from top to bottom, admitting daylight, freely. Four guns were dismounted, eleven carriages and thirty beds and transverses injured. 1,113 mortar shots and 87 round shot were counted in the solid ground of the fort and levees. 3,339 mortar shells were computed to have fallen in the ditches and overflowed parts of the defenses. 1,080 shells exploded in the air over the fort. 7,500 bombs were fired. That's a lot of ordnance. And I'm, I'm kind of used to those numbers. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not. With modern military, we, we go through a lot of material, bullets, artillery, uh, what have you, shells, missiles. What this The Civil War seems unique in a sense that it's like the last classic war and the first modern war all in one. Like it's using a lot of what we've now come to know as just modern methods, but still bayonet charges and you know what I mean? It's this weird mix. Actually, the modern period of warfare would have started during World War One. Okay. That's when everything shifted. Uh, but, no, yeah, war got much more severe during the Civil War, and people were around the world were taking note. So uh, the Brigadier General, Duncan, who was uh, commanding the forts, described the damage to Fort Jackson on the first day. The description I just went through were, was the uh, final assessment after uh, the battle. This was just the first day from, from the general. The quarters, quote, the quarters in the bastions were fired and burned down early in the day, as well as the quarters immediately without the fort. The citadel was set on fire and extinguished several times during the first part of the day, but later it became impossible to put out the flames so that when the enemy ceased firing, it was one burning mass, greatly endangering the magazines, which at one time were reported to be on fire. Whoa. Many of the men and most of the officers lost their bedding and clothing by these fires, which greatly added to the discomforts of the overflow. The mortar fire was accurate and terrible, many of the shells falling everywhere within the fort and disabling some of our best guns. He recorded 2,000... 997 mortar shells fired that day. Three short of a clean 3,000. Man. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of damage made life in the forts miserable because they had constant flooding from the high water within the fort. The crew would be safe from mortar fragments of falling debris, you know, only within the dank and partially flooded casements. Yeah. So the lack of shelter, food, blankets, sleeping quarters, drinkable water, and the psychological effects of heavy shelling that they really had no answer for, this, this made life very, very hard. Then you got the sickness, the yeah. ever-present the, the ever fear. And so these conditions were a huge drain on morale. So these factors contributed to the mutiny of Fort Jackson on April 28th. This mutiny began a collapse of resistance downriver from the city. Fort St. Phillips also surrendered, and the CSS Louisiana was blown up. And even the Confederate fleet on the lake was destroyed to avoid capture. Wow. The uh, general collapse of morales began with the mutiny and then just greatly simplified the occupation of New Orleans by the Union Navy. Absolutely. I mean, not only did they cease fighting, but they destroyed a lot of the material that would have been used against them. Yeah, that's what... I wouldn't say a stroke of luck, but I guess the Union did a good job of making things miserable enough for that to be a possibility. 
Yeah, they, uh, it, it, it made, uh, life intolerable and that's what happens. So the Confederates had thought that the Navy's ironclad ships, especially the CSS Louisiana would render the river impregnable against assaults like that they were going through right now, even though the Louisiana was not even finished, but, uh, General Lovell and Duncan, they were like, uh, Whittle, Commodore Whittle, uh, you need to hurry up. <laughs> so against his better judgment, he acquiesced to their request. And he had the ship launched prematurely and added to the fleet of Commander Mitchell. While they still, while they still had crews fitting her out on board. So on the second day of the bombardment, she was towed to a position on the left bank because they found that her engines were not strong enough to enable her to, you know, get through the current. Huh? Uh, so she was towed to a position upstream from Fort St. Philip. And this is where she pretty much was just a floating battery. Cause you know, she couldn't maneuver on her own. Mitchell did not want her any closer because her armor would not protect her from the plunging shot of the mortar fire. And, but, uh, so because she was so far up there, her guns could not be elevated enough to be brought to bear on the union, you know, so long as they stayed, you know, below the forts. This seems really unfortunate. I mean, for, you know what I mean? It's... You've got this weapon that could be a game changer, but, well, the engines qu aren't quite strong enough to navigate this river, the main river of your, uh, your nation, really, at this point. Yeah. Uh, so, several days pass, and there's just the bombarding, bombardment, bombardment, bombardment. But the Confederacy, you know, they, they showed that they weren't going to give up without a fight because the return fire from the forts did not slack it at all. So Farragut begins a new plan. And on April 20th, he orders three of his gunboats to go up and break the chain. Now, they didn't succeed in removing it altogether, but they were able to open a gap large enough for Farragut's purposes. Uh, so that brings us to the second phase, passing of the forts. So Farragut, he's like, I'm going to get past those stupid forts. So he modifies his fleet a bit by adding two ships to the first section of the gunboats. Uh, so that puts his boats into three sections into four, instead of four. So the first section had the USS Kiega, the Pensacola, the USS Mississippi, Onida, Varua, Caria. Kino and Wissenhaken. The second section had the USS Hartford, Brooklyn, and Richmond. And the third section had the USS Skiota, Iroquois, Kennebec, Pinola, Itasca, and Winona. They left the Portsmouth to defend the mortar schooners. So when they were Going past the forts, there were supposed to form two columns. The starboard column would fire on Fort St. Philip, and the port column would fire on Fort Jackson. Uh, they were not to stop and slug it out with the forts. They were to just pass as quickly by as possible. He hoped that the combination of darkness and smoke would obscure the aim of the gunners in the forts, and, you know, his vessels would be able to pass by relatively intact and unscathed. So at around 0300 on April 24th, the fleet got underway and headed for the gap in the chain. So after they pass that obstacle, they are spotted by, you know, the guys in the forts. Right. And they promptly opened fire <laughs> with everything they had. But as Ferriot had hoped, their aim was poor and his fleet suffered very little damage. His own gunner's aim, though, was no better than no. the aim of the forts. So the forts suffered very little damage as well. 
and the last three gumboats in the column were ended up turning back because you know they they were like oh we can't make it right the well the Atesca was disabled by a shot into her boilers and so she drifted out of the battle and the Pinola and Winona turned back because Don was coming up and they were like well we don't need us to be gun practice right so let's just go back so up until this stage the confederate fleet did not do very much but remember where the css louisiana was i believe it was uh stationary just behind the fort right just north of the fort so guess who's finally able to use their guns oh louisiana yeah and she had very little effect though oh you got excited for nothing haha <laughs> well at least they got into it you know it's <laughs> so the armored ram the css manassas came in early and tried to you know get into the battle but the gunners in the forts were not able to tell them from the enemy fleet so the forts were just firing on everybody that was in the water. And the captain, a guy named Lieutenant Commander Alexander F. Worley, was like, F this, let's go back up the river. Mm -hmm. And he would just stay there and wait for the Union fleet to come to him. So once they get past the fort, the uh, Union boats came under attack by some of the Confederate ships that, you know, ran from the fort. And the, the, the head of the column came under fire from these boats while the boats on the uh, aft end of the column were still actually taking fire from the fort. Whoa. Now, the Confederacy, as everybody knows, had their command structure was pretty fragmented. It wasn't very good. So they did not concentrate their movements. So the battle disintegrated really quickly into a jumble of ship-on-ship -ship encounters. The CSS Manassas rammed the USS Mississippi and Brooklyn, but didn't disable either of them. And when the sun came up, she found herself caught between two Union ships and wasn't able to attack either one of them. Ooh. So Captain Worley was like, um, let's beach us. We're just going to beach the boat. Get out of here. And they, they beached the boat, abandoned the boat, and set her afire. That's, that's um, not what I, 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 well, number one, speaking as a not, n never helming a vessel, when you're caught between two enemy ships and you're unable to attack either of them, I would think the f first thing would be to try to navigate so that you can turn or do something, or was it? Were their weapons just ineffective, or that seems like a pretty drastic uh, order? Well, he got into his mind that he had no way of winning this battle, and if he went into the fray, all that would happen is that his men would die and the boat would be sunk. So instead of that happening, she he decided to run her aground and destroy the boat so the uh, enemy can't use it. Happened quite often, actually. I am surprised, but I can see, I can see the thinking. Yes. Uh, so the fun part is that while the uh, boat's on fire, she breaks free from the bank. Oh. <laughs> and this flaming carcass of a ship going uh, downstream. Yep. And she finally sinks in view of the mortar schooners. So everybody in the por porch is just watching this burning boat go by. It's got to be demoralizing for the Confederacy and, and pretty entertaining, I would think, for the Union. Yeah. So the Tug Mosher, they set fire to a raft and pushed it against the USS Hartford. And her reward for that was a broadside. Ooh. And she was sent to the bottom. Well. Yeah. Uh, Hartford attempted to avoid the fire raft and ran ashore not 
too far upstream from Fort St. Philip. Now, she was within range of the fort, and she was now a sitting target. Thankfully, they could not bring their guns to bear on her. So she was able to extinguish the flames and work their way off the bank with very little damage. Uh, the CSS Governor Moore, when they were trying to get underway, got fouled. And they ran into the Confederate tug Bella Al Green, which sank her. Wow. Now, once she was able to get uh, get underway finally, the and she started attacking the Union fleet, she found that the USS Veruna was at the head of the fleet and gave chase. They were chasing each other. They were, they were firing on each other. And uh, she lost a large portion of her crew during the chase. Eventually, she was able to ram the Veruna. The ironclad or the cotton clab ram, the Stonewall Jackson, also managed to ram the Varuna. So the Varuna was able to reach shallow, shallow water during the uh, near the bank before sinking. So this made her the uh, only vessel lost from the attacking fleet. The uh, captain of the Je Governor Moore, guy named uh, Beverly Cannon would have continued fighting, but his steersman had had enough and drove the ship ashore. <laughs> As you speak, I'm trying to picture all this happening, and it it's almost fantastical, like uh, um, um, a screenwriter put this together or something. It's it's just everything that's happening and the decisions that are being made and why it's it's it's... I suppose it's more normal than people realize, but it seems wild. Yeah. Well, you'd think that uh, after, you know, running your ship ashore, uh, going against the captain's wishes, that he'd get in trouble, right? Right. Well, the captain realized that his steerman's was correct and that the ship was aimed, unable to do anything more. So they abandoned her and set her on fire. Well... It takes a big man to admit when he's wrong. <laughs> uh, the CSS McRow, they engaged several members of the Union fleet. This was a very uneven contest. And saw the captain, Lieutenant Commanding Thomas B. Huger, mortally wounded. Yeah. The boat itself was badly holed, and... She did survive this battle, but when she moored in New Orleans, she sank at her mooring. That, that's sad. That's terrible. <laughs> so uh, pretty much the rest of the, new, uh, the Confederate fleet, fleet was unable to do any harm whatsoever to the Union. And most of them were either sunk by you know the enemy or themselves. The survivors... In addition to, you know, the McRow, were the CSS Jackson, the Ram Defiance, and the Transport Diana. Two unarmed tenders were surrendered to the uh, mortar fleet, and uh, Louisiana also survived the battle, hmm. but was scuttled instead of, you know, surrendering her. Right. So many Confederate ships are just... Um, destroyed by their own side. And I keep thinking about how um, you always hear about the Union advantage in material and infrastructure and uh, industrialization and, and things like that. So they, could, they had more stuff and they could make more stuff. And so that was a good initial advantage, but then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger as not only were the Confederate ships and uh, guns destroyed, by the Union, but also by the Confederacy to avoid capture, so they just had fewer and fewer things to fight with. Yeah. So all in all, the Union lost one vessel. Wow. The Confederacy lost 12. That's huge. That's huge. That's very huge. So the Union fleet continues going north to New Orleans, and they face only a you know, token opposition at uh, Chalmette. 
so they pretty much just had clear sailing to North Lanes. The 14 vessels that remained arrived there on April 25th in the afternoon and aimed their guns at the city. While this was happening, General Lovell had evacuated the troops that had been in the city, so that means there was no defense possible. So while the Navy trained their guns on the city, the citizens started to riot, and they broke into stores, burned cotton and other supplies, and destroyed a lot of the waterfront. The unfinished CSS Mississippi was launched very quickly because they would hope they had hoped that it could be towed to Memphis, but no tow boats could be found. So she was burned by the crew. The uh, so Captain Farragut demanded the surrender of the city. The mayor and city council tried to pass that up to Lovell. But Lovell's like, no, that's your city. It's on you, buddy. (laughs) So three days of negotiations happen. Farragut sends two officers ashore with a detachment of sailors and Marines, and they go to the custom house where they hauled down the state flag and ran up the stars and stripes. That signified the official return of the city to the Union. So Butler, he was preparing his soldiers for an attack on the forts that were now behind Farragut. Commodore Porter, who was now in charge of the flotilla still below the forts, delivered a command to surrender to the forts, but General Duncan refuses. So Peter starts bombarding again, this time to prepare for Butler's assault. And this is when the garrison at Fort Jackson did the aforementioned mutiny. I see. So... Even though Fort St. Philip was not involved in the mutiny, the interdependence of the two forts meant that it also was affected. Right. And they were unable to continue the battle. So Duncan said, okay, 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 you guys win the next day. Well, that's um, quite a conflict. Just that, that Battle of New Orleans, a um, lot happened. The rioting really su- through, that came out of left field for me. I was like, oh, <laughs> not only is your city under attack, but it's like, hey, you know what? I'd love to sow chaos in my city and grab what I can get. Hey, let's steal some stuff. So the uh, CSS Louisiana, she was not part of the surrender negotiations because the guy in command, Commander Mitchell, was a representative of the Confederate States Navy, not you know, with the forts. I see. So he did not consider it his duty to observe the truce that had been declared. So he ordered the Louisiana to be destroyed. They set her afire and chopped her lines and let her just float down the river. I bet there is a lot of crud in that Mississippi River Delta, just littering the bottom of that place. Possibly, quite possible. But uh, she floated down the river and blew up when she was passing Fort St. Philip. Whoa. It was such a strong blast that one soldier in the fort died. Wow. Yeah. So now that the battle was over, there was nothing standing between the Gulf and and Memphis. After a few days spent repairing the battle damage to the ships... Farragut sends an expedition north to demand the surrender of other cities on the river. And since there was no effective means of defense, Baton Rouge and Natchez complied. Vicksburg was a different story. The guns of the ships could not reach the Confederate fortifications that were atop of the bluffs, and the small army contingent that was with them could not, you know, effectively take the fortifications. So Farragut settles into a new siege. But when the river water level started falling, he had to retreat because he did not want to get his boat stuck. Right. Because, you know, he had deep water ships. So Pittsburgh was safe for another year. Now, the fall of New Orleans also had international consequences. Oh, right. The battle 
probably swayed the European powers, you know, more than likely Great Britain and France, not to recognize the Confederacy diploma, uh, diplomatically. The Confederate agents that were abroad said that they started getting more cold sold, uh, shoulders after, you know, the uh, news of the fall of uh, New Orleans reached London and Paris. So that, my friend, was the battle of Forts Jackson and St. Philip. Very, um, very large impact. Yes. Huge impact. So any, any final thoughts? I guess nothing new, just the politicking seems the same. You always think that, oh, we're in the most corrupt time ever, but the the main difference I see in these battles is there's a there's a haste to surrender to preserve life, uh, I guess, as the Union kept pushing and the Confederates are like, this is an unwinnable situation, we're going to recognize it early and get out. Mm-hmm. That, that seems to yeah. be the biggest, uh, I guess point of light for me i don't know how to describe it just like oh well that's the most interesting aspect of this as far as a difference in what i see today versus back then but a lot of it is just the same yeah people are people no matter what right it's just the weapons technology has changed quite a bit and it's much easier to kill people now yeah all right so that's where we're going to leave it today um so we are partnered with herocars.us and we at the end of each episode, we honor one of our fallen angels. So today we're going to honor Petty Officer First Class John Emanuel Anderson. He is from Wilmar, New Mexico. He served on the LCT-30. He received the Purple Heart, and his date of sacrifice was June 6, 1944. Killed in action at the Omaha Beach, Normandy, in France. He was 24 years old. So, John Anderson was born on September 25th, 1919 in Wilmar, Minnesota, west of Minneapolis, in a countryside dotted by small lakes. He was the youngest child of Oscar and Anna Anderson. He had three older sisters, Esther, Marion, and Alice. Oscar, his dad, was a Swedish immigrant who had come to America in 1910 and became a U.S. citizen in 1913 much easier to become a citizen back in those days. As a young man, John worked for his father's successful painting and decorating business after graduating from Wilmar High School in 1937. The family planned for John to eventually take over the business. The surprise Japanese attack on the United States at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December 7th, 1941 changed everything. John enlisted in the U.S. Navy just two months later on February 7th to defend his country. So before leaving for basic training at Naval Station Great Lakes in northern Illinois, Anderson and his girlfriend Hannah became engaged and planned to marry while John, when John returned from war. According to the Naval Heritage and History Command, between December 7th, 1941 attack and the August 14th, 1945 surrender of Japan, over 4 million Americans served in the Navy. 1 million of these sailors were trained at Great Lakes. Uh, and that is actually the only training center left today for uh, naval training. From basic training, Anderson was sent to U.S. Naval Training School in Wapitun, North Dakota, where he completed the 16-week Motor Machinist Mate course. The official description of duties for a Motor Machinist Mate included operate machine tools, operate and maintain internal combustion engines and engine auxiliaries, knowledge of pressure and air systems, and be familiar with electrical apparatus. In a letter home to his sister, Esther John wrote, I don't mind working in the shop, but the studying business at night is terrible along with guard duty. Motor machinist mates were trained and tested on every type of equipment they'd encounter on the ships. They required to know how to keep the ship motors running in the worst possible situations. Anderson was then sent to the U.S. Naval Training School in Detroit, Michigan for diesel motor training. Cool. Where he'd repeatedly tear down and rebuild the engines. He graduated in September 1942 and decided to serve on a LCT Mark V landing craft tank crew. He came, next came amphibious training in Norfolk, Virginia. LCTs were used to deliver armored tanks, cargo, and troops to hostile shores. 
In February of 1943, without knowing his destination, Anderson left the United States for the long voyage to World War II's Mediterranean Theater. His first stop was in Oran, Algeria, where two months earlier in November 1942, Allied forces had liberated Algeria as part of Operation Torch, which was an invasion of North Africa intended to draw Axis forces away from Europe's eastern front. Anderson was then assigned to a crew of 12 men aboard the USS LCT-30 and saw his first combat action in Operation Husky, which was the Allied invasion of Sicily, which was launched on July 10, 1943. And after securing the island, the Allies launched Operation Avalanche on September 3, 1943, to begin the invasion of Italy. The crew of LCT-30 would deliver supplies and forces to the southern assault beaches of Salerno, Italy, coming under enemy fire during the assault. In January of 1944, Anderson was then sent to England to prepare for the Allied invasion of the European mainland, Operation Overlord, the largest amphibious invasion in history. According to the Eisenhower Presidential Library, quote, the invasion force included 7,000 ships and landing craft manned by over 195,000 naval personnel from eight allied countries. Just before the D-Day invasion, Anderson passed his motor machinist mate's first class exam. Then on D-Day, June 6, 1944, Anderson and the LCT-30 crossed the English Channel and landed at what the Allies had codenamed Omaha Beach as part of the massive invasion of Normandy, France. They successfully delivered their tanks, equipment, and men of the 467th Anti-Aircraft Artillery Battalion to shore. The crew of the LCT-30 safely completed its mission under heavy fire until they began to move out. Weeks later, LCT-30's officer in charge submitted an action report. Quote, Within this period of 10 minutes, vehicles and engineers from the small boat were unloaded safely. We began to retreat once more and all seemed too good to be true. This is when the magazine drum exploded. Then, when 50 feet from shore, a shell exploded amidships directly in the engine room. All engines were knocked out. Engine room filled with water immediately. The ship, disabled, grounded to shore. John Anderson, M-O-M-M-1 Charlie, could never be reached in the engine room where he had dutifully gone to check the sand traps. It was evident that he was killed outright. John Emanuel Anderson was 24 years old, and the remaining crew of the LCT-30 was ordered to abandon ship, go to the beach, and get back on one of the incoming LCTs. In the chaos and fusion that followed the first day of Normandy invasion, John Anderson's remains were removed from the ship's boiler room. The Defense POW MIA Counting Agency reports, quote, On July 1st, 1944, a set of remains were removed from the boiler room of the LCT and were interred by the Army at the temporary American cemetery near Omaha Beach, St. Laurent sur Mer, number 1, and designated X-91. St. Laurent at the time, Army Graves Registration did not have access to the Navy's records and were unable to identify the remains as Anderson's. The, re the remains were later interned at the Normandy American Cemetery at Colletteville-sur-Mer, France. Anderson's family were notified that he was lost at sea. It would take 71 years before a DNA match would positively identify the remains of X-91 as those of John Anderson. On May 8, 2016, John E. Anderson was returned home and at last laid to rest in his hometown of Wilmar, Minnesota. His name is listed on the tablets of the missing at the Normandy American Cemetery and Memorial in France, located in Colletteville-sur-Mer. As is the custom, a rosarette had been placed next to Anderson's name to indicate that he had been found. So, Petty Officer First Class, John Emanuel Anderson, thank you. Thank you. All right, so that is going to do it for us today. It was a little bit of a longer episode. So, you know what? Bonus for, for you guys. Well, there was a lot going on. You got to make sure you cover it all. That's all. So, uh, Christoph, would you like to take us out, my friend? Uh, yes, indeed, Dale. Thanks. Uh, so, again, thanks for listening. Uh, there's a zillion podcasts you could listen to, and you're listening to us. So, thank you very much. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can email usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you will get a response. Uh, you can also tweet us, 
or include us in a tweet or something at USN History Pod. Uh, we're also on Discord. You can find the link to the Discord channel in the show notes. And uh, we're also on YouTube, so look for us there. Uh, listen to this episode again there. Share with your friends, things like that. Um, again, thanks for listening. And with that, we were going to wish you guys a fair winds and following season. Bye, everybody. Bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Mm-hmm.